Start your computations for time warp. Bones, you come with me. You're listening to GGR Pirate Radio. Don't be a juice bag. Podcasting, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Mike and Steve Connolly talking about Star Trek and the Discovery and various other nerdy things. It's ongoing mission to explore the nerdy things that we absolutely love. To seek out new podcasts and new civilizations, I guess. I guess these get broadcast in this space. I know they always said that with television shows. But to boldly go where podcasts have gone a lot of times before, but hopefully more entertaining and more exciting than those. Welcome back, guys. It's another episode of Trekville, which is our Star Trek and Orville podcast that we're doing. My name is Mike Lunsford, and joining me as my number one, if you will, in this <laughs> podcasting uh, venture that we are making is a talented artist and creator. Uh, you can find his latest work, which is called The Middle Age, on Facebook, on pretty much everywhere on social media. He's got a Kickstarter, he's got a Patreon, all of that stuff. His name is Steve Connolly. Hey, Mike. Hey, Captain. <laughs> I wouldn't, I mean... No, can, no, it, we're I'm, sticking with that. I'm the captain. All right, fine, I can deal with that. I'll take <laughs> command of this vessel. Um, so we have just, as of recording, which it is uh, Friday, uh, April the 19th, uh, Star Trek Discovery just finished season two. Uh, we're going to be talking about the finale. We're going to be talking about the season as a whole. Uh, we're also going to be talking about uh, how season two of Discovery, or I'm sorry, of the Orville has played out so far because they are almost through season two um, with some really, really good high points, I think, uh, thus far, and uh, kind of want to see where they're going to go with it. But we're also going to talk about some of our other things, too, because this is just an all-encompassing Star Trek slash Orville podcast. We're going to talk about some of our favorite movies and TV series uh, in the genre and uh, see where things go with that specifically. But Steve, I wanted to start with your opinion um, on the finale of, of season two of Star Trek Discovery, because I'm less than 24 hours removed from watching it. Um, so I want to kind of get your take on it. Like, what? Did, how did you feel that this year, this season ended? One, in comparison to the first season, but then also, too, just as a whole, how was season two in your in your mind? All right, this is where I'm uh, first officer buzzkill, because I... <laughs> <laughs> okay, I thought... I thought it ended fine. I thought the season is like a uh, what was it called? Let's say uh, uh, a cover tattoo. It, it this first season was such a bad tattoo that they sometimes try to bleach it and fix it, and they cover it with another better tattoo. And you kind of hope that you could do something good and hide the messes that you made the first time around. And that's what season two of Discovery was for me. It was a, a uh, uh, the first one was so bad and there were so many problems. It's almost like every episode of season two was a take back. We're going to we're going to get rid of holographic projectors. We're going to get rid of weird Klingon looks. We're going to tie We're going to make it a Star Trek thing. We're going to introduce Star Trek to Discovery over the course of season two. The assuming everyone who's listening has seen the finale of season two, it ended in a kind of J.J. Abrams way and kind of a nod to the original series. It was basically, let's give the fan, this is fan service. We're going to give the fans what they want. Spock will shave his beard. He'll take his post. And, you know, that that's basically, 
kind of where the original with with this where we kind of hope this concept would have started. And we're also going to remove discovery from the you know no one's going to talk about Michael Burnham as Spock's sister. He's going to take inexplicably avowed and never mention her again. Um, they've said that the ship exploded, yet somehow and even so they're all willing to lie, but they're not willing to admit they knew any of the people who died in the explosion. Uh, <laughs> that's so weird. Um, I don't know. It, it, it was a mess. And, and like, I think I've mentioned before to you that the, they have this wonderful actress, Michelle Yeoh throughout the series as playing this evil mirror universe empress. She comes, you know, who basically is a cannibal in the other universe who had, who's become a surrogate mother or mother figure, even though she has a mother figure surrogate mother figure for Michael Burnham, even though she's smart enough to know that this is not the same person she knew and loved. And the same woman who made her eat Kelpians at the dinner table, she's a monster, yet they were trying to force this bond onto, I don't know, the whole, it was a mess. It was a mess because it started off as a mess. So season two was great. It followed the plan of, of all Star Trek, which season one's terrible, but Season one of Discovery was so particularly bad in such big ways, in such specific, deep ways, that it's very hard to just plaster over those problems. And they, they God bless them, they did their best. But, um, wow. It, it, oh, okay, they did their best. It, it felt like there was a completely different team running season two. It felt like they take all the criticism of season one to heart, and they did their best to right the ship. So... You can start season three, if there is going to be a season three, with a fresh start altogether. Um, for all we know, they christen a new ship Discovery. But but they, the writers definitely, like I said this in the last time, that the writers are so in love with Michael Burnham. They've given her that Gibbs character from MCIS or, or Kirk, who everyone in the room, 50 people, all experts, are all saying it's Romulans, 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 Romulans. Then this other character, the author's favorite, comes in and says, I think it's Klingons. And everyone's, oh, you're out of your mind. It's Romulans. And then at the end, of course, it's Klingons. Because it's whatever, it's always whatever, they're always right. And it takes away all the tension. And I don't know if you noticed that after our conversation, that every time she would suggest something, no matter how harebrained, um, invariably it was accurate. Uh, to me, that's terrible. And I, uh, 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 uh. So I, what did, I hear you. Like, What I, did you think? Well, one <laughs> of the things that I wanted to mention, too, because you just brought it up, is it's the... It's the Stan Lee way of writing because Stan, somebody like in one of his like um, his like letters to the editor that he used to do when he was uh, uh, editor in chief of Marvel. Um, somebody asked like you know they were talking to him like oh who would win in a fight you know the thing or or the Hulk or like these verses and he said the answer was always whoever the writers want to win. He's like there is no this character is always going to win this fight because it all depends on who is going to be the one that they writers want to win. And and that's exactly like you were describing. That is Michael Burnham. They want her to be right all the time. They want this person, even though everything else seems to be pointing to something else, they make them right. And I did notice that after we talked, but also like the thing that, so overall, I really enjoyed season two. I enjoyed season two way more than I enjoyed season one. Um, season one was, was still like that. That's the thing is I've still enjoyed both of these seasons. I would watch them again. Um, 
if if given the opportunity. You know, like I just haven't really wanted to watch them again. Um, but like season two was was immensely better. Um, my biggest gripes with it, though, and 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 tell me if you if you if you're kind of feeling where I'm going with this. My biggest gripe is is they love playing up emotion on this show, and like they they purposefully do it a lot. Where it's like, hey, we're going to have this moment where Ash and Michael Burnham are going to have this tender moment. Or um, Michael Burnham and um, Saru are going to have this moment. Or Spock and Burnham. But they're all Burnham. And it's like, with, with, with The Next Generation, with the original series, with any of the other Star Trek movies, yes, we all get that Kirk is the main character, but that's because he's the captain. And everything else is kind of like you had other stories going on with Next Generation. You had stories about about Worf and Data and whatever was going on. They weren't like ancillary pieces. They were fully fleshed out characters, whereas like Tilly, for instance, and um, Stamets, they all have their own things going on. But you only get little tiny pieces because everything's always about Michael Burnham. And to a certain degree, I get it. I understand why they're doing that. Because that's more of the modern storytelling aesthetic. There's always got to be a main character. I don't know why they feel that that is. Because Star Trek has proven time and time and again that you don't have to do it like that. But it's fine. My biggest problem was in, in, in this the final episode, which I actually I really, really enjoyed mostly. So if I'm going to give it a grade, like last the first season was like a C-. minus. Like, that finale was so horrible. It was just cobbled together. They were just like, well, we got to end this somehow. How are we going to do it? I don't know. Let's put a bomb on Kronos, which didn't make any damn sense whatsoever. But fine. It's 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 done. It's moved on. We're done with the season. Let's go to season two. But with this one, there was so much. There were so many emotions, like, where they had these, like, big like moments where people were, like, giving each other speeches and stuff like that. And, like... A perfect example was at one point when Stamets is basically like they're having to put him into a coma and Hugh explains to him, he's like, listen, I came back because you're my home. I'm your family. Wherever we go from here, we go together. Like that was perfect. That was great. It wasn't overly preachy. It wasn't like too much. It wasn't too verbose. But then like, for instance, Spock, when he gave Michael the live long and prosper before she left out of the... Um, shuttle bay in the Red Angel suit. That was perfect. But then they had another long speech to each other when he was in the shuttlecraft. Like, how many times are you going to have to say goodbye? And then, like you said, they had to, like, retcon it, and she was like, oh, you're always on my mind. You're always... That was that was way too much. It was, it was way... T- they dialed that up to, like, 11 for this emotional resonance, which... Spock never really had. That was his thing. Yes, he was half human, half Vulcan, but he was never overly emotional. And they've done that to him, not only in this series, but they also did it in the JJ movies too. And it's like his emotions are, have been like dialed way up than the way they were before. And like, I get it. It's, it's modern television. This is what you need to do. But like, I, it's just not sitting right with me all the time because the, the story should stand for itself and you shouldn't have to have these long speeches all the time. And I feel like they're using it as a crutch. But, like, I, let me tell Anson Mount as Captain Pike was phenomenal. Like, I think he is easily one of the best captains I've seen in a really long time. But then on top of that, there's a particular episode, the one where they have to get the time crystal, where 
um, the Klingon who guards the time crystal basically tells him, he's like, you're going to see your future. And once you grab that time crystal, you cannot avoid that future. That future is set in stone. And Pike sees what his future is and, and basically talks himself into, he's like, no, you're a freaking Starfleet officer. Like this is your job. This is what you do. Like, it doesn't matter what your future is going to be. You do what's right. And I was, I was incredibly impressed. And that was like a really gut wrenching moment that like, Wow. Like, can you, can you imagine knowing something like that about your future and still going forward into it with no hesitation whatsoever? Like, it, it was amazing. I, I thought he was incredible. And it's a shame, like you said, that we may not see more of him because we have to move into season three and it has to be the Michael Burnham show. It's interesting. He was really interesting as a captain. What I liked about him was that he was very, he wasn't like Janeway and Kirk, who is always right. He was someone who was willing to be proven wrong and always opening it up, to the, always opening up the floor to suggestions. And it wasn't just um, with the original series, the Spock and Bones were there to lay out A to B. You know, Spock would say A to B, Bones would say B to C, and Kirk would go A to C, and he'd be like, "Look at how profound I am!" Uh, like they lay these pieces out for him, and then he would just connect the dots. And that's, that's effective. I mean, um, but it gets tiring and, and because Kirk was the, uh, you know, the prototype, everyone's been following that formula and it's gotten monotonous. And I don't think modern audiences are, you know, clearly NCAS proves that it can work. That's my go-to as like, you know, typical dad protagonist. You know, he's, he's just a, no matter how bumbling and terrible and overacting and hammy the whole thing is, dad's got to be right. And uh, so I like that Pike was a different kind of captain. Um, but you, there are all those, all those issues with the series, guys. There was so much, there's so much to unpack there. Um, I felt that the forced conflict, the forced drama, that so many goodbyes, the idea that we had to go and watch clips of you know we get it she was the red angel in all the previous incarnations of it um i get that the we i don't think we needed to see a flashback for every one of those instances and and then um the space battle i've never two ships just sitting there i've never seen a space battle so so where, where so little is happening and so much is happening at the same time. It wasn't like you, you, you there was so many little ships and little shuttles, which is completely a, a complete departure from Star Trek, which are fine. You know, the, the showrunner wants to leave their mark, but uh, it was weird and chaotic and kind of boring. I thought it was not interesting I thought there was just explosions going on the whole time. They apparently they had one missile that they fired at the Enterprise once and it hit it went through the shields one time and then they kind of let they stopped those. I don't know why. And it didn't go off. And it was just weird. And then and then as more goodbyes than Return of the King. There was like so yeah, right. many goodbye scenes where you know, oh, okay, I guess this is going to be another tender moment between two people who we didn't know met before. Uh, you're right about Stamets and, um, oh, I forget his man's name. Yeah, Hugh uh, Dark Culver. Culver, yeah. Culver. Yeah. Um, 
the, that goodbye was perfect because they built up the relationship between the two characters. And you could say Tilly and um, Burnham. I mean, they were roommates. You know, she was foisted upon Tilly when she was, you know, the terrible season one. Uh, but I did also like that they brought that princess back from the shorts oh, in yeah. the, um, uh, the 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 idea of having the Kelpians somehow be flying this giant armada ship that came out of nowhere. Yeah, <laughs> was that the dump? I mean, again, all it did is it showed up and sat there, and that, that was, was that was the Klingon ship, and it was the Klingons and the Kelpians together. And the Kelpians were in, like, little fighter ships, which they had gotten from the Bahu, like the weird... Um, yeah, and they trained themselves to be in fighter like, pilots? In like, a matter versus, of, like, a couple of months. Yeah, that seems pretty... Uh, versus a super intelligent AI, so they went from being... That that was, like, you know, Battlefield Earth. That was cavemen and harriers. It was like, wait, what? Um I mean, it was a... T again, but, but it was just so they could have another touching goodbye between Saru and his sister. It... it, it it felt like they were just trying to tie a bow on this thing. Uh, just let's wrap it all up. If there's never a season three, at least we could. It would be satisfying. This would be satisfying if there was no season three. We could go on and never deal with this ever again. Because um, I really feel like season one was so bad that th this was absolutely the best you could do with that situation. It was like you know, the, the, whose line is it anyway, where you're just trying to screw the next person up. And the first season gave season two an insurmountable challenge, bringing Culver back to life, getting rid of an alien whose whole purpose is to die or sense coming death. They remove that from the Kelpians. The, the 3d monitors, I already railed about that being ridiculous and, and, and weird for the tech of the show that they're preceding it, which makes no sense. A super spaceship that can go anywhere in time and space, <laughs> like a, like a TARDIS or infinite improbability drive that belongs in the future. The clear, everything in this thing was gearing toward getting rid of Discovery, erasing it from the history, and uh, I don't know. The, the season one's only redeeming element at all was the idea that the Terran Empire had influenced Star Trek earlier than we thought. You could actually go, hey, that's pretty cool. And they got some great actors to play those roles. They introduced dumb things like light sensitivity and duh. But, but the season two, again corrected all that except for the fact that Giorgio the cannibal was somehow Michael's mama Which, and they gave I'm sorry no um, I, I wanted to rail on her go ahead go ahead and finish your thought but like I kind of think yeah. like we just got to go down each one of the characters one by one and just yeah. go ah well, like like <laughs> the idea of making the head of 31 Leland this you know okay now he's the heavy and now he's he from a guy who was able to dodge bullets and move faster than light the first time a Klingon warrior faced him in closed quarters, somehow the woman with the vulnerable uh, rebreather attached to her face and Giorgio were able to kind of fight him to a standstill. I'm, I'm, I'm flummoxed by the, uh, the, how much they backed him off without any explanation. You could have cut out 15 of those flashback, useless flashbacks and half of the useless goodbyes to say that his consciousness was, you know, controlling the other vessels, which is why he was at a diminished capacity and anything. But the whole idea that he was some, that he was somehow that discovery wanted to protect itself, but didn't want to protect itself from Leland. Um, that didn't make any ah. sense either. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. And like the other the other thing that I didn't understand is like I, 
I, I saw the way that they, they finalized it and, and that was that was consistent with season one was that like they gave themselves this thing that they needed to do, but they didn't execute it as well as they could have. And I'll give you a perfect example. They they established that Saru could talk to this this infinite knowledge. Like the um I mean I can't remember what they termed it as. The um The Orb? Yeah, like the the yeah he he wants the 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 orb data yeah. So, why didn't Saru just explain to him we need to get you safe and away from here? So instead of like having to send discovery into the future, you literally could have just had him explain we don't want you to destroy all of your data either. Let's load you onto the shuttlecraft and shoot you into the future. Problem solved, yeah. right? Like right there. In, in a nutshell, you could have solved that. But then also, too, if we've established that Leland was the problem and he was controlling all of those ships, why not send every able-bodied person on Discovery after Leland with a fr- flipping phaser, and you have like twenty-five people just blowing him away, and then it's no longer an issue? Or you know what you do? Instead of shooting at him, you shoot at the back of the ship and have him ejected into space. Yeah, there was a ton of those problems where it was, uh, they made him out to be this Terminator-like invulnerable bad guy. Yeah. Clearly, the only thing that could have been hurt on him would have been the gun. Um, He was firing at people, but somehow he was dodging bullets, so I don't know, for some reason he had pain receptors. Yeah. Um, There was so much, again, I, I feel like they they had to undo the damage of all this and at the same time deliver enough fan service because the first season seemed like there's no fan service here yeah there's like literally none and it's like if someone ever says you should never have that i think star trek discovery season one is a perfect example of what happens when you ignore your franchise when you ignore the the when you ignore your history you know and i'm not saying it has to be like a nobody nobody wants a retread of the original season i mean i know a lot of people do a lot of people are like i just want to relive my childhood again and and i think that's i think i think there's this just a couple of different ways you can approach an ex- pre-existing property one is that you're just going to do it again shinier which is what jj abrams tried shinier and with your own spin and he he's always he said that he's a star wars guy he's not a star trek guy so he applied star wars fly by the seat of your pants gut level instincts to and space battles and explosions and bright lights and phase you know phaser logic to star trek but it was still a retelling of the original it's kind of like you know a cover a cover band doing a a a pretty good for some people cover of a pre-existing song um you know people who appreciate the rich history of the thing and think that what makes it star trek what it is is its ethos and its bright vision of the future and uh, I don't know. There, there, there's so many. So there's a couple approaches. You can either just retread the thing, or you can abandon the thing altogether. And this was sort of Discovery was kind of like the reinterpretation of Battlestar Galactica in a way. Um, in, in that it wanted the out exterior trappings of the original show, but do something very different. Yeah. Um, so. I kind of get that, but they also want to set it within the content. But the, the difference was this, they want to have their cake and eat it too, or eat their cake and have it too, where they um, would set it within the continuity. 
introducing a sister for Spock. So many weird things. Uh, I don't know. It, 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 it really bewildering the number of choices they made or they were all compromises. It look it's it really felt like a committee meeting or like here's a good idea and then a bunch of people with the money said like well can we make it Spock's sister can we blah 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 and add all these things and it becomes this this thing that just falls apart yeah and I'm, so this season two try to hold it all together and try to clean up the mess but it was still a mess it's I'm, I'm with you and it, it's interesting that like i'm just i'm looking on the website right now i'm on i'm on wikipedia and if you look at the uh, rotten tomatoes critical responses of each episode of season two season episode one had a hundred percent just great reviews uh episode two uh like 93 percent uh episode three like 83 percent episode four like 73 percent episode five jumps back up in the 90s episode six up into the 90s and then they go up and down and like you get Six, seven was in the 70s, eight was in the 80s, nine was in the 90s, 10 was in the 60s, episode 11 was in the 70s, and episode 12 was in the 70s. So, like, they started off really strong, and they had a couple of really strong episodes, and I want to see which one episode five was, because they said that that was, like, the best one, other than the intro. Saints of Imperfection. Stamets and Burnham conclude that Tilly has been taken into the mycelial network. Oh, yeah, that was a good one. That was the one when Culber came back. Right. That was that was a really good episode. Um, that was a big that was a big undo. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I that was a, that was solid. It, again, it was really great. I mean, there were so many good things this season. But look at I mean, look at the end of the how it how it ends with Spock taking a seat on the bridge and shaving his beard. Like, that's the sim. That's the signal to all the fans. And I don't I. I don't know. Star Trek isn't just about Spock being clean shaven. They, that was such a clear, clear big deal for them. Like he joined the, he got back on the bridge, and number one goes and looks at him. Clearly, they've seen him without a beard before because they said that they've, they've done the Telos episode. So it's it's all for the fans. That moment right there is is just like when um, in Star Trek Into Darkness when they say he's Khan, and you know it. Who's that for? It's for the fans, and so that that that's the wrong kind of fan service. Fan, you know, fans. I, I'm, I again. I'm, I, I don't have a problem with fans. It's when it's when it's just uh, patronizing or uh, cheap. Um, there were moments in this in season two which were great. I know we said when we first started this, so in the last episode, that part of our goal was to get people to watch these shows. Uh, I think season two has watchable moments. I love their interpretation of the the new Enter- of, of the Enterprise, the that was pitch perfect to me. I think if you're going to reinterpret it, I felt like when when Spock takes his his post and you see that kind of those spinning dials behind him, uh, you know that that mimicked the physical effect, the practical effect that they had in the original TV show of like two dials that are just sort of spinning behind some panel. There was like a digital version of that, an electronic version of that was on his screen. The bridge having the bright color red the captain's chair the kind of weird swivel the kind of office furniture of the behind the navigation panel all that stuff beautiful nods you don't need to spend 20 minutes panning across the bridge to show us all that and they didn't they just it was just there when they got in the turbo lift and it has those kind of i don't know uh paper towel tube uh controls that kind of just extend down you rotate them the it's those things loved 
and they didn't have to make a big deal about it, and they didn't. That's that to me. That's fan service. The rest of it, but it, and it should all be in service of the story. That Stan Lee quote you were talking about. Whether the can, whether the thing or the Hulk would win, the would be not just what the writers wanted, but what would make a better story. What would be more satisfying? And if you, if at the end of if at the end of Discovery is we get rid of Discovery, we never talk about them ever again. <laughs> that's kind of a incredible concession because after the first season of Star Trek Discovery, that's exactly what I wanted to see. I want to never talk about this ever again, and uh, I want to see them go far away. and And the show should be set, and and the and the the thought that the show should be set in the future, and they fixed all that. So I should be happy that they fixed all that. But that's why I said it was like a cover up tattoo. It's. They did the best they could with 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 a very permanent scarring problem that they gave themselves in the first season. The thing I, I think, like, if we were going to sum it up here, because we'll we'll move on to uh, the rest of the the rest of our uh, topics for this evening. Um, but if I was going to sum it up, the things I liked about Discovery season two, I really liked. The things I didn't like about Discovery season two, I really didn't like. So yeah, it, like. They That's kind, totally fair. They kind of balanced each other out. Like, I think that if I'm giving this a grade, I think I'm... I, I like how ambitious it was. I like that they took some risks with some characters that we already knew. Um, I, I had mentioned... I had started this, but I didn't finish it. I am so friggin' sick of George O. I, I don't like the character. I think Michelle Yeoh is a wonderful actress. And in fact, you know, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is a wonderful movie, and I think she's great. But I don't freaking care about this character. I don't think she's interesting. I don't think she's exciting. I don't want to see a side uh, show with her, like a spinoff, where it's her doing cool, nefarious. I don't care. I'm so sick of her. And I don't know why we're being force-fed her as this, like, snarky, like, oh, look, you know, oh, she's so clever and she has these great one-liners. No, she really doesn't. Like, those are really friggin' annoying. Like, I'm tired of listening to her talk. And it's yeah, nothing... It's inane, yeah, and she brings nothing to the table, no. as far as I can tell. You know who's the more interesting uh, Section 31 agent? Uh, friggin' Ash Tyler. Like, he is way more interesting. And thank God they put him in charge at the end. Because that is that is a unique character that is an interesting character with a lot of things going on and like one of the things this thing the thing that that ca- caught me with this with the finale was there were certain things that really made me feel like this is definitely Star Trek and it was the moment uh, I already mentioned it before when he when Spock gives Burnham the live long and prosper I was like that's perfect but then they just kept doing it and I was like God why didn't you stop right there that was perfect. The moment between Culber and Stamets was perfect. But then also, too, when the Klingons show up and they're just like saying in Klingon, today is a good day to die. I was like, exactly. hell yeah. And yes. like, they have that Klingon attitude where they're just like um, the uh, the Chancellor is bleeding after after taking a, like a photon torpedo hit and she's bleeding and she's like, ha, I didn't think this was going to be a challenge. Like I was like, that's they got the Klingons right. Like it's little things that they're getting right that they're there it's and it's not just fan service it's like they know how to write these characters but then in certain circumstances it's just like i don't know why they're being so sappy and so over the top with this like emotion thing like is it i this is going to sound like blasphemous because she's the main character but i think this show would be better without michael burnham it sounds weird i, I know it does no no i yeah. i i don't think she's an interesting character i think what makes kirk interesting 
was that he had the responsibility of the ship on his shoulders. And so you can have all that other stuff. And Gibbs has the responsibility of keeping America safe in NCIS. It's the same thing where as long as you put every character should be a balance of these things. But she she has all the authority and none of the responsibility. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of the choices taken out of her hands. Like, OK, she's the only one genetically connected to the suit. So she had no choice. Um, but so much of it just feels like weird grandstanding um, or this is a life and death situation where explosions are happening everywhere. I'm going to take a little personal moment, if you don't mind, to have a touching uh, goodbye with somebody. I'm like, if the, either the situation is urgent or it's not. And either, you know, seconds count or they don't. Um, and the show and this show seemed like, you know, it seemed like this. They're in the caught up in the middle of this war. Their ships are getting beaten up right and left. It didn't really seem to matter, though. Because it, they they just seem to be able to take infinite punishment, uh, and again they didn't fly. There was like a space battle with no movement. Yeah, is I mean the closest thing to me, Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan should be there, the Star Trek blueprint for how ships should uh, when you have a budget how they should be able to fight in space. They should feel like nautical vessels. They should feel huge and turn on one another slowly. And if, if because that's always what separated Star Trek from Star Wars. The Star Wars were all about these little fighters that moved quickly and zipped and zapped around. And they were sure there were these big battleships, but there was, was a very one-sided, you know, the Empire had them, Rebels didn't. And But the idea with Star Trek was you had these, you know, it was sort of the mid-range, you know, somewhere between a Star Destroyer and an X-Wing fighter. They were these middle ships. And it was a weird place for them to be from a, you know, from appealing to nascar fans or people who want like high speed action um but this so to solve that they just put all these little again using technology we've never seen again in the future tons of you know 300 little fighters for no reason i think you could have had two ships and it would have been way more interesting i'm sorry star trek 2 shows you that you could have two ships and it's way more interesting yeah Uh, just a million fireworks going on and for no reason for, for, for literally no reason whatsoever. It was very Because it didn't it seem to give Leland an, it didn't give Leland an advantage and it didn't give anybody. It was just fireworks. Yeah, and like at, at first I liked the idea they were like, hey, you know, put out every single vessel we have to give us a fighting chance. And then Leland's response was Oh, well, I got the same thing. It's like, really? Like, that's... It would have been fine if he had those Section 31 ships, which I can't remember how many of them there were. Yeah, but like 13 starships. Yeah. Those 13 starships against Discovery and the Enterprise and their little armada of, like, little ships and stuff like that. That would have been more interesting because you still would have had to have maneuvered around. But basically, they just... They parked themselves there. It was essentially like two aircraft carriers duking it out. And that was never something they did with Star Trek before. I don't know why they decided to do that. I would have, I'm with you. I think it would have been much more interesting to see. Cause like, honestly, you want to know what your template could have been for that? Would have been um, the episode from Next Generation, Yesterday's Enterprise, where the Enterprise D has to take on three Klingon birds of prey and defend yes. the Enterprise yes. C so they can get back through the vortex. I was like, why didn't you just do that? And like, that's their job is to is defend them off while Burnham gets them the hell out of there. Like it's, it, it just it didn't sit right. It was just not. It wasn't well handled. And no, but and, yeah. and and 
that whole episode could have taken place. You there probably could be a, a director's cut of that episode that was about ten minutes long, and it would have had exactly the same amount of content, but it was a lot less bridge crew members just staring dumbly at the screen. Yeah. They they would have a thing where we have millions of well count again, uh, and then you have to cut to every person on the crew kind of looking up looking startled (gasps) to tell us that we're supposed to be startled and i was tired of that episode telling me what i should be feeling instead of them actually creating something that was uh moving yeah exactly you know the stamets and culver's goodbye was very touching um yeah i don't know what happened to the princess at the end they kind of left that they kind of let that go um I mean, she 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 would have had to have stayed because they were they were right outside of her home planet. So I would assume that after Discovery left, I mean, because she watched Discovery leave, she probably just returned to her planet. I mean, I didn't think they really needed to go out and state that. Um, But yeah, I'm with you. Like they made they made okay. You could have taken because this was a quote unquote a two part episode, uh, episode thirteen and episode fourteen. Such sweet sorrow. You could have made it one episode because not only did the second episode have a million goodbyes so did the first episode like make it one episode and it would have been so much tighter it would have been so much more interesting like it's and that's the thing is is it's their product it's their it's their thing that they created it's it's a cbs branded product on a cbs streaming service what whose rules do you have to follow have as many episodes as you want 13 have 13 you want 14 have 14 whatever you could have just made this one flipping episode and it would have been so much better yeah i and kudos for them for not having their final debriefing take place uh on krypton in the uh in the, <laughs> yeah right in the pun in the uh, sentencing room for the negative zone yeah very 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 true someone paid the light bill which was nice <laughs> let's um let's kind of shift gears here and let's talk about the orville uh season two of seth mcfarland's star trek uh baby uh that is the orville um when we last talked about the orville we talked about part one of uh of episode eight of the season and that was uh identity uh identity being the two-part episode where we find out that uh isaac the um the sentient robot uh, from uh, Kalon was essentially a spy and was spying on um, what are they? They're not the Federation. What do they call them in this one? Um, planetary Union. Thank you. He was spying on the Planetary Union to find out their weaknesses. And I, I got to say that second episode was was very very well done. Um. There were things that I thought that they missed, but overall, I, I really thought it was a good, good episode. Um, and I wanted to, we'll talk about that a little bit and then the rest of the episodes that we've seen so far. Um, but like, I'll, I'll start this time with this one and then I'll let you go. The second part of Identity, when we see that the, the Kalon are essentially going to take over uh, the Planetary Union, they're going to go to Earth and you're just going to wipe Earth out, was... I was like, all right, this is interesting. This is very reminiscent of best of both worlds. Okay. Um, but I, I really thought that it was, it was interesting that you saw the Kalon saying like, oh, we don't have any emotion. We don't have any emotion. They kind of did. They were pretty, pretty vindictive and they were pretty, uh, pretty pissed off at humans in general uh, or, you know, just living beings to begin with. And the fact that Isaac had a, had a moment that was very reminiscent of Darth Vader from Return of the Jedi when he has to make a decision 
and you can essentially see the emotion on a masked face that doesn't have any way of showing any emotion. But you saw him decide to destroy Kalon Prime, uh, Primary, um, to save uh, Ty when Kalon Primary was going to kill him. I-, I thought that was incredible. I thought there were little things too, like the I don't know what class of ship the Orville is, but that Orville class ship. As those Kalon ships are getting close to Earth, they were kamikazing the Kalon, and I don't know if you noticed that or not. But I was like, I'm watching that, and I was like, that's that's incredible. These guys will not let them get to Earth. You are not going to destroy our planet. We will sacrifice our own lives for it. And it was that was incredible. And I thought that it was really really well done. Um, and it made for a really interesting pivot point for the rest of the season because the rest of the season essentially has been the aftermath of what happened with the Kalon. Yeah, I, I liked it too. I thought it was going to go in a completely different direction, but uh, we, we talked a little bit about that afterwards. I, I kind of thought it was going to be a test of humanity, um, but uh, I, I enjoyed I enjoyed the episode. I enjoyed the whole season. I think they're doing a really good Star Trek. Um, I think uh, I, I haven't sensed the uh, Kalon threat after what happened. Um I uh, I would have thought that things would have been a little crazier or a little more tense um, the way when the Borg uh, attacked. I mean, and they basically had to do all that kind of recovery, all those recovery episodes after the two-parter in the in the Next Generation. Yeah. Um, I didn't really feel that with Orville, but again, but Orville, these episodes have been been great. I thought they had a lot of a lot of really wonderful stories. I mean, it's 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 there's no sense of continuity. I'm sorry, not let me take that back. There's no sense of an uh, overall storyline that they're trying to follow. It really feels like they're doing episodic television, and I'm enjoying the heck out of it. Yeah, it's I, I'm I've been enjoying it too. But I like that there is a thread that runs through these because every single episode since that Kalon attack has been here's the things that's going on because of that. Like the uh, the episode immediately following it, uh, The Blood of the Patriots, was about the, um, the, the, the peace talks with the Krill. So because of that, like cautious, cautiously, like the friend of my enemy, or the enemy of my enemy is my friend type of arrangement they made with the Krill when fighting the Kalon, you're seeing that that is what is allowing the Krill and the Planetary Union to kind of broker a, a, a cautionary piece. Yeah, I um, did like I liked that too, and I liked that um, you got to see Gordon kind of have to deal with some of his past where it was like, I have to trust this thing, and like, I, that was that was awesome. And then they, <laughs> one of the other things that I really liked was, and it's just kind of funny, um, the episode was Lasting Impressions. It was the one after that. It's where um, Gordon ends up falling in love with the woman from the cell phone. Um, that he basically created like an, a holodeck uh, version of by extrapolating all the data from her cell phone. Um, I really, really like that one. And just the fact that like the um, the Mocklins, Bordas and Clyden both became like a, like hopelessly addicted to cigarettes. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that was fun. I, I really liked that episode. I, I kind of thought it was going to be a little more dry, kind of uh, yeah. a bit more rote. Yeah. But the, the idea, again, hoping people have seen it, the idea that... Um, he removed a rival, uh, a rival romantic partner, a romantic rival uh, from the holodeck program. And it was interesting to see that um, how much she had changed 
without the presence of her previous romantic interest to the point where she was no longer that she lacked chemistry with him at from that point forward. And that was a very mature thing. That's a, I think only a uh, McFarlane wrote that episode, I believe. And I think only an older person could have written that episode. I think there's sort of a, there's a, there's a maturity to knowing that um, the lives that people have led up to the time you met them inform who they are and become inseparable from who they are. And, and so jealousy or uh, Machiavellian plotting can undo a lot of what you like about a person. Um, and, you know, if they, if you wish they didn't have a past, who would they be? And I, I don't know. They, they, it, it seemed to be a rebuttal of a very childlike approach. It's, it's this kind of maturity you don't see in Family Guy or from a lot of other works of his. Yeah. I, I think that one of the things that I've, I've really liked about season two is every time they have an episode where I kind of roll my eyes at the beginning, I'm like, they did this on Star Trek The Next Generation. Why do I need to see this again? Then they take something and they twist it just enough that makes it one different, but two really puts it in a whole different perspective. Like there was an episode where Isaac and the doctor essentially fall in love. And like, I was like, I've seen this before with data. Data did this once before, but they took that and they made it a little bit better. And this lasting impressions one, it reminded me of when Jordy had to, they had to get the enterprise out of a, some weird energy draining trap and they couldn't figure out how to get out of it. So he ended up creating a simulated hologram or a simulated like program to essentially be the designer, Dr. Leah Brahms, uh, the designer of the, uh, of the enterprise's propulsion system. And he falls in love with that simulation, right? This was a more mature adult version of that. Cause I'm watching this and I'm like, it's this, I've seen this, right? But like, cause Gordon very easily could have just been like, I can make her into whatever I want. And then she's just like a weird fantasy for me, but he still, he treated her like she was real. Like she was alive. And when yeah, he tried no, to tweak that, he was like, no, I can't. What I did was was wrong. And there were shades of Barkley in there, too, in yeah. that there was a, he, you know, Gordon d- defends his relationship with a, uh, I must say, fictional person. Um, I mean, she's real to him and she's real in that she's a composite of all these all this evidence, a composite of all our of all these uh, sensory inputs uh, but he defends that relationship, uh, and I thought the idea of hosting a party in her virtual space and inviting the other crew mem- the crew members to it. There was a lot of really interesting things I thought that um, that they did not do in Star Trek. And again, Star Trek had a different reason for being, uh, but I really enjoyed it. I thought they take they took it in a place. I think there's a sense of clearly since they're fans of Star Trek. They've seen these episodes too, yeah. And they're like, "Well, we don't want to do that." And they, and so far, they've gone out of their way to not just be a, a ripoff of Star Trek. Yeah, they they take these ideas. They were like, "Hey, we really like this, but what if it was more modernized?" And they do a really, really excellent job with it. And it does it does make it fun. And um, one of the other episodes that just happened, and this was not the most recent episode. This is the one that aired. Uh, two weeks ago, or not two weeks ago, last week, uh, it was the April 11th episode, and it was called Sanctuary. It was directed by Star Trek alum uh, Jonathan Frakes, um, called Sanctuary. And it, we find out that um, the Mocklins, um, who Bordis um, is a member of the Mocklins, and we found out in season one that they only have male Mocklins, and that's it. Uh, but then uh, him and his uh, mate Clyden had a 
offspring, and the offspring was born female. And they forcibly changed the sex of the of the child to meet with the societal standards. And that was a very heavy episode in season one. And we've seen that come back two or three times now at, throughout the season. Because at one point when Bordas is addicted to porn, which I thought was a really funny episode, um, you find out that the reason why he does that is because he resents Clyden, his mate, for forcing them to make the child male. And I was like, wow, that is super heavy. And then we see in this episode, again, it comes back because we find out there's an entire planet full of female Mocklins that have like essentially used like an underground railroad system to get themselves to this hidden planet. And like this, this one thing keeps coming back and it's just like, I, I love that they keep revisiting this. Um, and it's not, they're not like beating you over the head with it, but they're like, this is the, this is a big issue and we're not going to just shy away from it and do a one-off. We're going to keep talking about it. Yeah. I feel like in the first season when they did that, they knew they were opening up a can of worms that there was this this whole society who's a member of their planetary union, who's a member of their federation, who has a you know, again, we don't want to try and they're trying not to judge a, a society from the outside um, but if there are universal values uh, discrimination is not one of them uh and uh, so what they were clearly – what their, their societal practice is clearly discriminatory and so they've had to deal with it. So Bordas is clearly in the right in this situation from a from a – I think from maybe from an empirical standpoint. Uh, from a culturally – from the cultural standpoint, you've got uh, uh, Clyden and, and his point of view. And I love also how they handle the, the, uh, their, their son's transgression because he kind of turns his dad in in that episode and – he says it's not your fault. It was like you know you're a child, basically saying you know you were being loyal to your other dad. That's not. There's no shame in that. There's nothing wrong about that. I thought I, that was such a quick thing. They did. They didn't uh, spend a lot of time on that, but I thought they handled it really well. Also, like seeing uh, Counselor Deanna Troy on the episode. Yeah, as the elementary uh, school teacher. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah. So even yeah. more crossover from the next generation and yeah. Star Trek. So I thought really great episodes. Um, yeah. I love that. I love that. You know, just enough Seth MacFarlane in there to have the Dolly Parton reference. And... Oh my God, that was wonderful! Like, <laughs> I, I it, it started off as cheesy, and you're like, "All right," and then the female Machin is like, "Who is this poet?" And you're just like, "Really?" And like, but then you listen to the lyrics of the song, and you're just like, oh, "You know what? Actually, this this really works." And like, when when they're in the when they're in the chamber, and like the uh, the admiral looks at him, he's like, "Really, Dolly Parton?" And he's like, "Yeah, it's a long story." <laughs> and like, it, it really ended up working. It was just like, it was, it was incredible. Like they, they did a, an excellent job of, like you said, using that Seth MacFarlane um, pop culture identity that he's created and just like kind of infusing it into the show. Yeah. Cause it, it was silly, but it didn't undercut the tension or, or her emotion. I thought the actress really sold it. Yeah. Yeah. She, yeah, she really did. That was, that was a great episode. Um, there are, I mean, are they are they doing the, the standard 22, 23 episodes or? That was my understanding. I think it got a full order. I think people, people seem to like it. I mean, when we started this, I don't think Disney owned them, but uh, oh, yeah. I think they do now, right? That's interesting. Um, so Disney has their own Star Trek, basically. Uh-huh. That is, uh, that is very, very interesting. Um, yeah, I just, I, I enjoy the show. And there was, a, there was a point there where, 
and I, I can't remember exactly what episode it was of Star Trek Discovery, but I was kind of bummed. I was like, this isn't really going the way that I had hoped. Like, it's okay. And I was actually more excited about the Orville than I was about Discovery. But those last, like, three episodes of Discovery really hooked me. Um, I was a little disappointed with the ending of Discovery, but it, honestly, like, these, these shows just keep being, for me at least, they're neck and neck. They're both interesting. I, I want to keep watching them. I, I like seeing where they're going because they're telling me a similar stories in a completely different way. And I like that Discovery has the one storyline thread that runs throughout it. Um, I like that... Uh, the Orville doesn't. I like that you're not seeing the exact same things from these shows, and that's why I think that, in spite of what some people say, they're like, oh, you're either a classic uh, Star Trek fan and you only like this, uh, and you only like the Orville, or, you, you know, you like Discovery because it's new and it's fresh. No, I like both. I, I, I like that you... I think you can have both of these things um, and not have to pick one side. Like, it, it's okay, you know, that that, that meme of like the little girl where she like shrugs and she's like, why not both? Like, that's how I feel about these shows. Yeah. I, I, and I, I judge each one on its own merits, like each episode on its own merits and each scene on its own merits. So I don't, I don't have a problem with liking star Wars and star Trek. Um, but, but parts of them, you know, I'm not going to be a Gungan fan and I'm not going to be a fan of, uh, some of the dumber episodes of star Trek. Um, but this, the discovery, had such storytelling. I mean, as a cartoonist, as someone who writes and draws his own comics, I, I, and someone who thinks about story structure and storytelling a lot, the problems and the, the things they were doing with Star Trek were just bad storytelling. We're just, you know, why are you doing this? There's a, there's a, you have a choice in a, in a situation. One of the, well, really interesting, you know, this is tangential, but Stargate for all its weirdness and I always thought it was a weird thing. I never really got into it. I only started recently watching the episodes um, in the last maybe two years. They are so – their plots are so well constructed. Just from a storytelling – I mean I think you could you could learn storytelling by watching that show. Yes, it's weird to have a military unit going from planet to planet under – you know, through, through a, a wormhole device. That's all weird um, and, you know, it's it's – army men versus ray guns it's it's a i don't know it's it's a not a very elegant concept but each one of those episodes the plots are well constructed the universe is kept uh integrated they don't they once they establish a rule they don't violate it and if they have to bend that rule a little bit they make a point of saying how they're going to bend that rule so again Maybe not the best stories, maybe not the best actors, maybe not the most gripping television, but from a plot point of view in terms of how to write a story and how to construct a story and how to respect a story, I think they do a great job. And I feel like Discovery doesn't care. They will – this is also J.J. Abrams. This is Stephen Moffat with Sherlock. They are way more interested in getting you excited than they are in telling you a good story. They're more interested in ma manipulating you emotionally or hitting you with an explosion or hitting you with a loud sound effect and then trying to convince you with a tender moment because one character starts to cry. You know, it's like you, you haven't earned that moment. They, I don't even know who this character is. They had a wonderful episode where I think it was a Jonathan Frakes episode again where one of the characters who we've known from the very beginning uh, gets infected by the orb data in yeah. uh, Discovery. That or was by um, by uh, what's it called? Not uh, by control. Oh, sorry, control. Yes, control, yeah. The that was a great episode. 
if I knew who that character was before that episode, it would have been even a better. way yeah. better episode. Yeah. But no, we didn't even, I don't think we knew her name until that episode. It might have been said once, but we didn't have a backstory. But it was one of those things where they had to force it all into it. So that's like, you could also say Edith Keeler in the original time, you know, the, the time travel episode with Star Trek. You know, we meet her, you know, in, in 45 minutes, Kirk meets her, falls in love with her. And it's the, you know, the heartbreaking death. We know we basically we don't even know this. We we have to meet her so quickly. And this episode of Discovery had a similar cadence to it where we have to fall in love with her immediately. Um, uh, and it was just really interesting. It was. Yeah. I mean, it was what was neat about it, too, is is like they pulled the old the old hat move of, um, hey, I'm a cop and I've been on the force for 25 years and this is my last day. You know, like it's yep. It's like all of a sudden we got to know about all this person's backstory. It's like, oh crap, they're gonna kill him. Uh, and that was the same thing with Arium. Arium is is the uh, the the uh, I, I sure. guess she's a cyborg, yeah, because she's and it was an interesting story too. And like how it all happened, like basically she was in like a shuttle craft accident, and they made her into what she is. And like I, I just thought that was I thought it was fascinating. Um, it was a shame that we didn't get to know more about the character because she became like on the on the message boards and on like the Facebook groups. She became like this like legend. Remember how like in the 80s, like after we saw Empire Strikes Back, everybody was obsessed with Boba Fett. We were all like, Who sure, is this guy. She was the Boba Fett of Star Trek Discovery where everybody was like, I'm so fascinated by this character and she's so cool looking. And what is she and what's the deal? And like you got all of this data about her after season one because everybody was so obsessed with her they're like oh she's gonna be a much bigger part of season two and she was little by little they they integrated her in it was really kind of a shame that we had to see her go because i mean she was a fascinating character what's interesting though is that the actress who played her actually showed back up the actress who played her was the the blonde lieutenant who took her place on the bridge after her death oh that's funny i, I thought that was kind of cool like the actress got to keep her job basically <laughs> Well, I thought, I, I, I mean, when I first saw her, I thought, oh, wow. So there was another android in Starfleet before Data. Yeah. Uh, I thought, oh, great. One more, one more, uh, you know, rule of Star Trek thrown out. But then it turned out that to, to discover that she is not an android, but uh, just basically reconstructed from as, in as best they could. And given what happens with Pike, that's a totally legitimate uh, uh, concession with the early Star Trek that people... You know, the, the technology, it may be a few centuries from now, but the technology is not quite there yet. Yeah. Um, it can't so, yeah, anything. she was a wonderful design and uh, the face was a little stiff. But uh, I, again, I thought the design was great, but the, to have her infected and uh, and then to have to make a sacrifice. I, I think it might have been an episode where Burnham came closest to maybe being wrong yeah. about something. Um but yeah. a really, really good episode. Might probably the best episode of the season. I mean, apart from apart from two minutes of seeing the new bridge, uh, <laughs> no, sorry, to seeing the uh, the the Enterprise bridge again yeah. uh, updated, uh, uh, that might have been the best episode, it, it, in my opinion. I really liked I really liked episode twelve, the through the Valley of the Shadows, when they have to get the time crystal because, mm. like like I said, it was about that one moment where. Pike has to, he was like, well, all right, I got to do it. This is what we need to do to save, save the, you know, the universe basically to save the galaxy. And he sees his future and he still is just like, no, absolutely. No, this, this is what, this is what I have to do. This is, I don't care. Like that was just, 
like his duty above all else was just like yeah yeah that that was just that was incredible like that 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 spoke volumes to me about this character who is like this living body this living embodiment of what it is to be a Starfleet officer. I, I thought that was incredible. When when we've seen so many um, crappy Starfleet officers on yeah, the Yeah, especially in, in season one. Yeah. Season one was like, there was an, and the, the idea of making this admiral someone who's going to sacrifice herself, an admiral who, I couldn't tell why we were supposed to care about her, only slightly, you know, only slightly more appealing than Giorgio yeah. as character. Right. right. Um, yeah. yeah, they, I don't know, they, ugh, yeah. ugh, I say to Discovery. <laughs> But but I'm, I I differ. I mean, I feel like if 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 I found out Orville was canceled, I'd be very disappointed. If I found out Discovery was canceled, I think, oh good, CBS has more of a budget to do something new, and let let's 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 get excited for whatever uh, Patrick Stewart's doing next for them. I can I can see that. That's I can understand that. Um, I I just yeah, and, and that's the thing is if Discovery got canceled, I'd be like, well that's that's a bummer. But I wouldn't be like crushed if the Orville got got canceled. Honestly, the same thing though. I'd be like, well, that was a fun couple of seasons. But like, it's I feel like with what Discovery is doing, we're seeing that you can revive these series and do something new and fresh with it, and it not be dated and it not be. I, I think honestly, like the writers and the creators, they're all like so obsessed with the idea of we get to do whatever we want. And we're not going to follow these rules. And they did that in season one. And then everybody was like, uh, that would have been cool if the story was better, dude. And they were like, all right, well, let's go back and try to fix a bunch of the other stuff. And they were like, no, you know, if you had just like focused on telling better stories and not trying to play up on everybody's emotions and, and essentially tripping over the things that caused the problems from the other series and the other movies that they did, you would be fine because there was a lot of good that came from season two. But as we saw with Next Generation, if we're going to use it as a template, Season one was awful. Season two was better, not as not great. But season three was when everything kind of came together. And season three, in my opinion, season three and season four are just like lights out dynamite for those series. However, they never put themselves into a corner that they couldn't paint themselves out of because Discovery is now in the future. And we already know from those Star Trek shorts that the the discovery is just going to be drifting in space with no one in it for years because that, that short where that guy shows up, there's nobody on the discovery. Where are, where is everybody? So I think that that's an important piece to deal with because how are you going to answer that question? They, They do these creative ideas, but they don't, they don't think about the consequences of them too. They're great stories in the moment, but then it's like, man, you really, set yourself up for something that could be very, very difficult to fix. Yeah. And that's a, that's a thing where I say this a lot now that awesome is the enemy of the good. Yeah. And they are always trying to get people to go, Oh man, or have some sort of Twitter reaction or something like that. It has to, if it's not this sort of earth shaking thing that they don't want to do it. And there are, there can be quiet moments and those quiet moments can be beautiful. Like, look at none of these people appreciate Miyazaki at all. They don't have a, a moment where they go, you know, there could be this quiet thing, and that quiet thing can endear you to a character. But they don't get to have those. Everybody's got to be profound and edgy all the time, and everything's got to be cool and slick and awesome and so awesome. And that was awesome. And I, 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 I don't know. I think if they if they're looking at the dailies and they ever go, that was awesome, they should stop themselves. They should stop themselves and go and maybe try for a different reaction. Yeah. Try for a different emotion. 
Um, one of the things that I really liked, though, and I just wanted to give a, a quick note, because we were talking, at one point we were like going down the list of the characters that were pissing us off. Um, one of the characters that I, I thought was a really bright spot in season two, but she fits with a, um, a stereotype that you did not like. Uh, Tig Notaro as um, engineer Jet Reno. I, I loved this character because, one, genius. Two, got stuff done. But three, was surly and was like almost bordering on insubordination, but would catch herself. And that's what I loved about it because it reminded me of people that I knew in the military that were damn good soldiers or damn good officers. But like they were just a little bit off key. You know, they were a little bit like, man, this guy's going to get himself in trouble. Like as Jet Reno is like going to solve a problem and Saru says to do something. She's like, yeah, yeah, I heard you. I heard you. I mean, sir, sir, I heard you, sir. I got it. Okay, cool. Like she caught herself and like, I thought that I thought that was kind of cool. I thought it was a neat little adding depth to these characters and and making these Star Trek Starfleet officers a little more like us instead of being because a lot of times that was the problem that people had with Star Trek is that these people were like oh well they're in the future and they're perfect and there's no problems with them. We saw that there are more Barclays and and yeah. especially on these science ships and and I just and thought, I thought it she was for, yeah and I wasn't sure what con- what you, what you what rule of mind she was violating. But I liked her character a lot. And she did remind me of some of the cast, some of the crewmen from the original yeah. uh, Star Trek and from like Forbidden Planet who have a, you know, who have an edge. And there was a moment where she goes, you know, she says, it's going to take five minutes. He said, she says, I'm going to need it sooner than that. And said, she said, I can't break the laws of physics. It yeah. wasn't one of these things. Like she was the opposite of Scotty at that yeah. moment. She's yeah. like, no, my original estimate is true, and we're, we're you're stuck with it. <laughs> How long before it's charged? I need two. I need, yeah, I need five minutes. Yeah, I'm gonna need it faster. Well, I can't break the laws of physics, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was, it was, yeah. it was really good. Yeah, I thought she was a great character and a, a lot of fun, and uh, should have been in the season one. Because uh, I don't know if the ship had, the ship may have not have had an engineer. I mean, I don't know if Stamets was engin- the head of engineering or he's just in charge of the spore drive. I'm not sure what his role is, to be perfectly honest. Like, I know that Stamets is an engineer, but he's also, like, a specialist in these spores. So it's, like... I, yeah, the, the, yeah, really interesting that this this Star Trek didn't have, like, here's your science officer, here's your medical officer, here's your, you know, uh, Burnham. I guess the ship didn't have a science officer until she was arrested yeah, and thrown yeah. in the brig and given a, summer, uh, a summary promotion. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I, the but Tignatar was a great addition. Totally, totally loved her as a character, and uh, I am sad to see her go. Yeah, I, I think that um, I'm really interested to see what they're going to do with season three. Like, it's I guess it's all going to be in the future, or and, they come back, how, but they have to leave Discovery there. I don't know. And the whole the whole plot had this kind of dumb. Uh, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure quality about it, where <laughs> I'm going to send, we're going to travel through time and, um, man, I'd really like a sandwich. So I'm going to have in the future, I'm going to have traveled back to all these places and left a sandwich everywhere. I want one. Um, this kind of this, how did she know about, uh, Reno? How did she know about, uh, the, the planet where her mom was, uh, I mean, basically, they ran into all these people and then now she knew to go back and get all those people. Yeah. So it was like, 
it's a chicken and egg problem, but just somehow an egg and egg problem. It, it's like this weirder. Uh, it's like the opposite of a typical uh, a paradox with time travel. In this case, she only knew she saw all these people, got them. I don't know. Unless the mom programmed that information in somehow. Yeah. I don't know. You, you'd have to. We as viewers would have to construct a logic to make sense of the story. That is a really good point. Like, how would they have known to go find Jet Reno? And the Jet Reno would have been the one to help them with that. Unless, yeah, I mean, the mom was the one who went through time for, what was it, 786 years or something like that? Like the, it, yeah, and Ele- the planet Elysium and yeah. uh, all those other things. And somehow knowing that she could salvage the Kelpians and get them to overthrow their moist overlords. Yeah. It was very, uh, the, the, all, all of that stuff made no sense. Again, you just, we really love Michael and it's going to be awesome. And but does that make any sense? It's awesome. Yeah. Exactly. People did you, did you see all those explosions? Wasn't it dope? Yeah. Like it, it the answer is time travel. Yeah. So if it, that should be every kid's answer on every essay question, yeah. time travel. How do you fix this problem? Eh, just go back in time time travel what yeah. what started the civil war time travel yeah you don't know it didn't um <laughs> oh goodness but can um, you can you show your work can you justify your answer nope no because well because if i could well it's like that whole thing like um i i would have already in the future and time travel back here and given myself the answer so clearly it can't be solved the problem that i'm creating can't be that bad because if it was then i would have traveled back in time to stop myself perfect there you go there you go. There it is. <laughs> On that note, let's um, let's do just a, a real quick. Let's if you can think of like one. Well, I'll, I'll do one, and then if you can come up with one, we'll just keep kind of going back and forth a little bit here, and then we'll we'll wrap up here in, in just a couple minutes. And, I, and I and I feel terrible if anyone's listening to this and they yeah. they just hear me gripe again and again and again. There is so much entertainment that I love, and yeah. I just you know. Ugh. Uh, we should start a uh, podcast about how great Umbrella Academy was or uh, uh, how much I enjoy Legion or something like that. Something I, I'm yeah. really digging as opposed to a Discovery being this Ajita-inducing torment. Um, well, let's let's talk about that because what we can do is we can promote the other shows that we have on our wonderful GGR Pirate Radio Network because, Steve, we will have you on an episode of GGR Pirate Radio here soon because uh, I've heard nothing but great things about the Umbrella Academy. I know some of our other podcasters have watched it so i'll have to watch it we can all talk about that uh legion i really enjoyed as well i think yeah we will have you on another time and we will talk about things that we love instead of just ripping on star trek so that's sounds good okay instead of the evil mirror universe steve who co-hosts this show with with his goatee intact and everything (laughs) um what i want to do is is i want to talk about some of the things that we love about star trek and um we'll start with a movie We'll, we'll each do a movie we'll do um a season of one of the shows and then like one of your favorite episodes. Um, I I will go ahead and start to kind of get the ball rolling. Uh, When we're talking movies, I think that the, the gold standard when it comes to any of the Star Trek movies is definitely uh, Star Trek Two: the wrath of Khan. That was, in my opinion, it's, it's the perfect Star Trek movie. No movie has been able to surpass it. No movie has, has come. I mean, some have come close, but none have been as good as that one I think that it you can't make it with the new cast though because you have to have established this 
20 years of history where Kirk and Spock have been friends all of this time, that's what makes it resonate so well. That you have this this one-off enemy from season one when it was basically just like, you know, hey, here's the parade of stars that we've gotten from network television. Hey, you know Ricardo Montalban, don't you? Hey, he's the bad. He's this week's bad guy of the week. Like, they took that thing that they did in the '60s with television, and they were like, let's modernize it and let's make it into an awesome, amazing Star Wars movie. That is, if you've ever read A Tale of Two Cities, it follows like beat for beat with all of the things that are going on with A Tale of Two Cities. Um, and it's it's still, like, I, I saw it when I was a little kid. I saw it when I was, like, maybe six or seven the first time and fell in love with it then. And I, I still can watch it now and enjoy it just as much as I did then. The, the movie really, really holds up. Yeah, that that is absolutely the best Star Trek movie. And I, I, and I think in terms of, like, comparing it to uh, whatever Star Trek, not Beyond, but whatever the second, Into Darkness, where they did a weird pastiche of that movie. Um, you They introduced the characters in a way that, sure, they, they had presumed that people were bored to tears with Star Trek The Motion Picture. Um, but Star Trek II, the soundtrack is great. The storytelling is great. It is a crash course in what Star Trek is. So if you didn't even know who those characters are, like they, they said that the director had never... He, had, he wasn't a fan of Star Trek. The only thing he knew about it was Spock's ears, like the guy with the pointy ears. And so when the movie starts and you hear the – I think it's, it starts in the screen's black and you kind of – you basically start with Spock's ear and pull back. <laughs> yeah, so it's like this like – you know, uh, you're saying, OK, there are aliens. And then you have this introduction of Kirk as being an older person and dealing with old uh, – getting older. And – you introduce a son he didn't know he had a completely legitimate thing to have with Captain Kirk. Yeah, there was yeah. nothing that they did that violated the original series. They did a whole new story, one that was sort of timeless, and they did it perfectly. Uh, yeah, it's dumb in in spots, but that's sort of the sort of dumb in a in a uh, embracing the genre kind of way where you've got like you know sand eels that go in people's ears and control their brains and that's there's sort of a you know but but when you're watching it i don't think you're taken out of the moment by those things i think those are just things you have to you you know it's still the sound that those creatures make still creeps me out whatever that sound effect was um and when ricardo monobon's explaining how those wrap around the cerebral cortex he's still it's like the creepiest thing in the world he's a perfect horror actor um Yeah, I thought that movie was fantastic. Um, I, I don't think it relied on too much insider information to make sense of it. I think if it, if you just watch one Star Trek movie and you watch that, you'd you'd understand the relationships of the characters. There's not a lot of forced drama. Uh, the theme of self-sacrifice and the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few or the one. Totally legitimate uh, philosophical argument. And uh, yeah, quite lovely. Um, yeah, I'm. I, I don't. I'm not gonna. Say, I'm gonna say Star Trek Four is kind of a flip side of that. In that, it is fan service. Yeah. It really is. But but also, uh, they they also made sure that they had a solid story to tell. I think four, two, and four had the best story. You know, simple stories to tell. Um, whether it's surviving a revenge plot or. Um, you know, trying to accomplish something, getting this giant, you know, 
I don't know how many ton MacGuffin, you know, from the from the past to bring it to the future and to save the planet. And at a time in the 80s, I saw that in one of the theater at a time when, um, you know, environmental issues were front and center. Again, Star Trek was always very culturally resonating. You know, it was always very uh, it had its finger on the pulse of whatever was going on. Orville does a good job of that, too. But but uh, Star Trek four. It felt like with all the environmental discussion and all the the wailing that was going on and continues to go on, that was a really, I thought it was a good story to have. I mean, but, you know, it had lots of jokes and some stuff that doesn't quite age so well. Um, but that's a problem whenever you said anything in the past or said anything in a specific time. Uh, but, but right now it's almost like, uh, now it's a, another period piece because it was so 80s. Yeah, it uh, really was, yeah. But anyway, that but uh, two and four just great. But two yeah. uh, two is pretty much perfect. I can't think of anything uh, anything bad to say about that. But, yeah. f- but four is cheesy, but um, but so much fun that they found a way to give each one of the characters, each one of the everyone's favorite character, had a had a moment to shine. Yeah, that was inter- yeah. Now that I think about it, that one really did have everybody had an awesome moment in it, and uh, yeah, like I, I personally, I really like. Star Trek 3 a lot because that was when I was a kid that was the first Star Trek movie I ever saw because I remember it was the ABC movie of the week and I got to watch that um, I got to stay up late my dad let me watch it and we had popcorn it was awesome and it was it was just cool because it was this thing I, I knew about the Enterprise and how cool the Enterprise was and how you know uh, Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock and all, and all of this stuff and then the Enterprise blows up and you're like wow like as a kid that's like they blew the Enterprise up that's you can't do that. And it, I know it's not the best of the movies. It was, it, I just really, really enjoyed it. But I think if, if there was one more that we had to put in there for the best of the original movies, Star Trek six was, was awesome. Like six, I think is, is just an incredible uh, movie as well. I, w- I would put three and one a little bit ahead of six. Really? Um, yeah. I mean, I, there were moments in three where I felt like, uh, you know, they had the proto matter, uh, of of the to try and explain was that what it was proto matter to explain how the uh, yeah. Genesis torpedo worked like the, why, the why it screwed up basically yeah yeah the unobtainium or whatever the MacGuffinanium yeah uh, <laughs> and uh, so that, that but but the moment when uh, the Klingon kills David and Kirk gets knocked out of his chair yeah I mean that I didn't know Shatner could act until that moment. Um, I thought he was just kind of reading the lines, and I thought he was Kirk until I, you know, I thought he was just some guy. Just you know, you you hire a certain actor, you hire Jeff Goldblum to be Jeff Goldblum, you hire William Shatner to be William Shatner. That moment when he gets knocked out of his chair at the, at the death of David really hit, really hits hard. Um, and Star Trek One has so much that, like, we might have talked about this last time, or uh, that the idea when the the shuttle goes and just circles that model of the Enterprise for what seems like. A half an hour. Uh, it could have been. Tw- it could have been five hours long, and I would have enjoyed it all. The music is beautiful. The ship is beautiful. The all that stuff. It, it's a. It's a. It's a ten-minute story in a two and a half-hour wrapper. Yeah. So boring in you know in in so many ways, but also beautiful in so many other ways. Um. But the uh, but six to me felt too small. The at that point, every one of the characters had to have a moment. And every one of the and uh, they kind of move from set to set together, like a phaser goes off in the kitchen, um, 
when Savick, I think it's Savick, might not be Savick, might have been uh, the Kim Cattrall. Oh, Val- character. yeah, Valera. Yeah. Valera. Um, or Valeris? Valeris, yeah, Valeris. So she's she fires her phaser to make a point, and then the entire bridge crew show up in about a minute and a half in a, in a way that makes it feel like it was a, almost like the apartment in Seinfeld. Like it was like <laughs> everyone just, just have, don't you people have jobs? Um, uh, it, 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 a lot of that throughout the entire sixth movie. So it, it, it was a good story. Um, to me, it would have made sense if that's how section 31 got started with a big trader happening in the middle of the, uh, an admiral going, uh, uh, trying to start a war. Yeah. Um, but because uh, I I saw someone online say Section Thirty One doesn't make sense in the Federation. I thought, well, after six, it totally does. Um, you'd want to start policing your own people. Yeah. Uh, after one of them goes that crazy. Um. But then again, it also would have made sense to start Section Thirty One after uh, uh, the Next Generation episode, where those those creatures were sort of. I think they left it alone. They had embedded the back of the neck. Oh God, that was such a gross episode. Yeah. So. <laughs> So creepy, and the way it ended was just he was sending a signal out to deep space. Yeah, and, and beautiful, another creepy, creepy episode from the very from a very early season. But anyway, so I, I I would go with from the movies. I would go with two and then four, um, but uh, six was good. But um, we could ignore five. Don't go anywhere near five. I don't know what a I don't know what a marshmallow is. A marshmallow, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> five five is really really bad, and like they um, they make a at one point. There's a, an article on a, on a website I go to. It's called Cracked.com. And Cracked talks about wonderful things in otherwise horrible movies. And they talk about Jerry Goldsmith's score and soundtrack for Star Trek V. Uh, how mm. Five is such a horrible movie, but it is such a an amazing soundtrack. And if you ever get a chance to listen to it, like it's actually playing in the background of this episode. So, you know, that's, if you wanted to know what piece this was from, there you go. It's from Star Trek five. Um, that's fantastic. I need to, I need to listen to that. I, I've, yeah. I've ignored it, you know, uh, because it was Star Trek five, but that's great. Yeah. Listen to the soundtrack and just like, try not to imagine the horrible things that were happening in the movie when the soundtrack's playing, but like <laughs> it's, yeah, no, the soundtrack is really, really good. Um, you know what? I think we'll save the, uh, our favorite episodes and favorite, uh, like seasons of any of the series for later, because we got a little good conversation in there about our, our favorite of the original series movies. Um, so before we go, before we had go ahead and wrap up, uh, Steve, why don't you tell the folks how they can help support this awesome comic book that you're working on, uh, where they can find it, uh, how they can get their hands on it, all those wonderful things. If you'd like to be as critical of my work as I am about Star Trek Discovery, you can find it at <laughs> middleagecomic.com. It's the comic that's been going on for about two and a half years. It's a fantasy story. It's not science fiction. I've done some science fiction comics, and I drew the Star Trek comic. I, the comic. There's like a, uh, I never mentioned my a little bit of Star Trek credentials in that uh, I drew Star Trek Year 4 for IDW, three issues of that. Um, and to, to get that job, my art had to be approved by William Shatner's people and by Leonard Nimoy. So I'm a Shatner approved artist. Wow. That will be on my resume forever. <laughs> uh, but I, as a Shatner approved artist, you can find my current project at middleagecomic.com. It's also available to read if you look up the middle age over at Webtoons, Tapas, Go Comics, and social media. And uh, it's all supported through uh, Patreon. So if you uh, want to find me at patreon.com slash Steve Conley. But again, if the comic's completely free to read online, it's at middleagecomic.com. And I hope you uh, uh, give it a chance. Yeah, definitely uh, go check it out. And uh, right now, 
uh, the magical sword that has been helping our stalwart hero throughout the entire series has decided that he's no longer going to help. What's going to happen next? You guys should check it out. Um, I very much enjoy reading The Middle Age, Steve. It's it's one of my... F- uh, every time you have a new update, I'm like, oh, God, there's more, yes. And I'm always so excited. So it, it's it's one of my favorites. I've gotten everybody else on the GGR Pirate Radio team, like, really, really hooked on it, too. Um, like Steve Monick, um, MC Brooks. Like, everybody is, like... Uh, they're all big fans and we just we love seeing that you're doing great things with this book man oh thanks i really appreciate it of course but that has been another episode of trekville so stay tuned guys we'll have more episodes of this but there's always lots of other great stuff at ggr uh that is the great geek refuge it is greatgeekrefuge.com. there's podcasts there's articles there's all sorts of great stuff in fact i am going to have a written article of my review of season two of Star Trek Discovery. Uh, Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Part of the reason why we did the podcast before I did the article was I kind of wanted to flesh out all my ideas about it, but don't tell anybody. Just read the article and enjoy it. Um, But for Steve Connolly, uh, my name is Mike Lunsford, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Trekville. Thank you for listening to Trekville, our Star Trek and Orville-inspired podcast. Make sure you check out Steve's fantastic comic, The Middle Age, at middleagecomic.com, or become a patron at patreon.com slash steveconley. Pirate Radio Network production juice bags. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, boy.